This podcast is presented to you by Pastors Tom and Bonnie DeShal from Celebration Church in Harare, Zimbabwe. For more information, please visit celebrationmen.org. Uh, you know, we've been uh, celebrating the fall feasts, and uh, I uh, just want to talk a little bit about the fall feasts. Uh, as, as we've been celebrating them, we started with Rosh Hashanah, uh, which is called the Feast of Trumpets. And uh, Rosh Hashanah is a time of repentance. Uh, it's, uh, it, it started this month. I mean, these are the fall feasts. It started this month. And uh, Rosh Hashanah uh, is uh, uh, 10 days later, we celebrate what was called the Feast or the Day of Atonement. And, and that's the time of redemption. It's the Jewish New Year. And uh, that is... Uh, uh, a commemoration of the redemption that God brought to Israel, but more importantly, that God brought through Jesus Christ for us. He is the atonement. And the last of the fall feasts is something that just happened this last week. It was called the Feast of Tabernacles. And after the redemption, after the atonement, after the new year, there was a time of feasting for 15 days uh, or seven days of rejoicing. And uh, these are times of rejoicing, of celebration, of thanksgiving. And, and, and during this time, people are encouraged to be hospitable, to invite foreigners and friends and family to have a feast together, to, to join together. And uh, this is tying in with what we're doing with Missions Month. Uh, we're on a mission. We are on a mission to let people know about the atonement of Jesus Christ, that Jesus paid for all of our sins, and that, uh, hey, this is a time to celebrate, to celebrate what God did. But uh, this year, these feasts fell from the 4th through the 11th uh, of October, uh, this, this Feast of uh, Sukkoth, or Sukkot. And uh, the Feast of Tabernacles is really for us is a time of remembrance, okay? It's a time of remembering his provision in the wilderness. God provided for the children of Israel in the wilderness. He provided manna. He provided quail. Uh, he provided his protection, he provided garments and clothing. He provided a water, that, uh, a river that followed behind them. He had water. And uh, they had his presence, which is the Shekinah glory of God. They had God's presence. Now, you know, some of you take God's presence for granted. You've gotten so familiar with it that you forget. But it, it means to have God's presence. This is a time of remembrance of God's presence. In fact, the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, says this. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying... Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, On the 15th of this seventh month is the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, for seven days to the Lord. You shall live in booths, or you shall live in tabernacles for seven days. All the native-born in Israel shall live in booths, so that your generations may know that I, the son of Israel, that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the sons of Israel the appointed times of the Lord. Nehemiah 8.15 says this. It says, so they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. Now, these booths or these tabernacles is a word called sukkah, S-U-K-K-A-H. And that's the singular for Sukkot, plural. The feast is Sukkot. The, the singular booth is Sukkah. Uh, 
And a sukkah is a temporary booth. It's a shelter. It's built by branches of a tree. And if you go to Israel this time of year, you'll see these booths all over. People live outside. Of course, it's great weather. It's beautiful. So they live outside and they celebrate in the streets. They celebrate with each other. They bring the harvest in. They bring fruits and vegetables. It's an amazing time. And uh, so we did the same here. Our school uh, recently celebrated this and they started by constructing the uh, Sukkoth or the booth at the school. And there's the finished look. Then they dressed up in biblical character to come to school and that, that was a fun time for them. And to practice, to see, hey, what is this feast that we're practicing? And so it was a great time for them. You can see on top of their bookshelves there, on where they, their, book, their bag holders, all those fruits and vegetables that they brought in. Well, every child brought fruits and vegetables. And those fruits and vegetables are being uh, today distributed in our Hatcliffe outreach program with our Hatcliffe church, with all the people there that we're serving and taking. So they're, they're, they're engaged with us. They're part of it. And here at this young age, they're already learning the Hebrew feast. You and I are way behind. We got to catch up on it. But we're introducing this to the church. We're introducing this to you and I. And uh, so we just want you to uh, begin to be aware of it. Over the years, it'll take us about five years to implement this, you know, because I understand that we're not going to do it in a day, and I'm not trying to force this on anybody. But I do want to get to a place that we understand that God set forth his feasts, and those were corrupted by men who adopted pagan feasts, and we tried to make them Christian. We tried to make them godly. And uh, we see that the God is out of all the Christian feasts today. Uh, you know, some people are trying to keep Christ in Christmas. But that's very hard these days because Christ was never in Christmas. <laughs> so we have to understand that uh, I'm not saying don't celebrate those things. I'm saying that let's begin to be aware, ding-a-ling-a-ling, uh, do your own research, okay? Hallelujah. So just be aware of what God's doing. For those of you that are visiting, uh, you know, that's, that's an inside joke, okay? Uh, we're in missions, in missions month. And uh, last week I, I, I tried to touch you at the level of the heart. Uh, God, God wants us to have a heart for people. God wants us to understand that he has a heart for us. And wherever you're at in your walk with Christ, wherever you're at in your walk with God, I want you to understand something, that God is never finished with you. So the message today that I'd like to bring to you is what I call growing in grace, growing in grace. And so everybody have a real Bible? Open your Bible to 2 Peter. We're going to stay in this chapter the whole time. So just leave it open. Get your pen out. I want you to write in your chapter. You're going to get a lot of notes today to write right here in your book. Lots of things to circle. Lots of things to write. I'm going to do kind of an exegetical study for you today. Exegesis is the breaking down of a passage of scripture. It's taking and going through it. An exegetical study would be if we took a whole book and said, okay, we're going to go through this book. And I think I might do that next year is take a book of the Bible and just say, okay, for this, however long it takes, six months, six weeks, whatever it would take to go through a book, I think you'll find a benefit in doing that. But I'm going to be a little bit exegetical today. Okay. Have you found 2 Peter 1? We're going to start with verse 2 and read through verse 11. Grace and peace be yours 
in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us every great, or his, excuse me, through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires or caused by lust. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they've been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and your election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I asked a little boy the other day, I said, uh, I was asking, I said, how old are you? And without hesitation, he says, I'm six going on seven and I'm almost eight. <laughs> I, just, I just had to look at him. I thought, you're six going on seven and you're soon to be eight. Okay, that, that's a little boy that's in a hurry to grow up. Uh, he, he, he was in a hurry to become something he wasn't yet. And I find that same attitude in many Christians. I find that, you know, they want to grow in the Lord, especially when they have uh, just gotten born again, when they're new in the faith. But sometimes as time goes on, the enthusiasm to grow begins to fade. It begins to wane. And we begin to settle into kind of the humdrum routine of growing to be spiritually complacent. Spiritually complacent. Uh, it's kind of like the story I read about where an old farmer who often described his Christian experience with this testimony. He says, well, he says, I'm not making much progress, but I'm established. And that was kind of his, everybody would talk to him. That was his testimony in church and how are you doing with the Lord? Well, I'm not making much progress, but I'm established. And so in the springtime when he was hauling some logs on his farm, his wagon wheels sunk down into the mud, right up to the axle. And he sat there looking and viewing this dismal situation. And a neighbor who had always felt uncomfortable with his testimony, his worn out testimony, came by and he cried out. He says, hey, Brother Jones, I see you're not making prog much progress. He says, but you must be content because you are well established. Uh, I think it's a way of pointing out that you're stuck. And you know, sometimes we get stuck in our Christian walk. Have you ever been stuck spiritually? See, God doesn't want you stuck. God wants you to grow. And even if you've been a Christian for many years, uh, this Hebrew New Year I just spoke about, you know, we just start Yom Kippur, should be a year of growth 
and godliness, growth in godliness for you. And that's our title today, growth in godliness. God wants you to grow up. God wants you to keep maturing. And he wants us to be mature until we're perfectly like Jesus Christ. <laughs> now, that won't happen anytime soon. In fact, that probably won't happen until we see him. So we all have room to grow. Is that right? But Peter, in this passage of Scripture, gives us some very wise counsel about growing in godliness. He says, uh, and I, I, I want to break it down for you, but you have to understand, you will not grow. None of us will grow, myself included, unless you're deliberate. Unless you're deliberate. Without deliberate discipline, without deliberate effort, you cannot grow. You don't just grow because you want to grow. It's interesting to me that here this guy Peter, a man who's known in the Gospels for being impetuous, here he sets forth a deliberate discipline and disciplined approach to spiritual growth. Here, you know, here's how I think. If Peter, the impetuous one, this impetuous fisherman can become disciplined, he can become a godly man, then I think there's hope for me. I'm not so sure about you, but I think there's hope for me, okay? Amen. No, there's, there's hope for any of us. Amen? Amen? So I think what he's saying is that because God has imparted new life, because God has imparted spiritual riches to us in Christ, we need to be diligent to grow in our godliness. So I want to look at four practical lessons that we see in these verses. Number one, to grow in godliness which is our title, we need to make sure that you have trusted in Jesus Christ and in his gracious and precious promises. Okay? So in verse 5, Peter begins, he says, Now for this reason, look in your Bible. Now for this reason, for this very reason also. So for this very reason also. What, what is this very reason also? You have to go back to verses 3 and 4 where Peter, where Peter told us what that when we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, the Bible says that God also granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. If he's given us everything for life and godliness, then he goes on to say, for this reason, you can do something. Verse 4 says, uh, through the glory and the moral perfection of Christ, he says, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in this world by lust. Now for this reason also, grow in your faith. Grow. For this reason, grow. What? Because God has done so much for us through Jesus Christ, he says because you have this, this foundation, you can grow. Amen? Amen? You know, do you ever, I don't know about you, I'm a, as a pastor, do you, but do you ever think like this? Do you ever wonder why people don't just flock to Christ by the thousands, by droves? He offers complete forgiveness of sin. He offers eternal life as a free gift for everybody that would believe. What could be better? Why wouldn't you just flock to that? Why aren't people lined up at the door of all of our churches Asking, what must I do to be saved? I'll tell you what it is. Because the answer is found in two passages of Scripture. The first one is in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. 
The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We have an enemy who's blinding people's minds. And can I tell you something? For many Christians, that same enemy is blinding your minds. We talked about Nehemiah last week or two weeks ago. Over the, or, or, and what happens is many of us get born again, but we are blinded still. The enemy still has control over the gates of your life over the walls that have been torn down in you, and, 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 and you, you respond in an inappropriate way or you respond in an immature way or you respond in a way that you can't see what Jesus has really done for you. And so part of what we're talking about is it's time to grow up. Grow up into Christ. It's so easy for some Christians to get derailed. They, they got born again, but boy, I'll tell you what, so easily offended, so uh, easily tripped up because they don't see what Christ has really done for them. The second scripture is found in 1 Corinthians 2.14. It says, he says, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually apprised. There's lots of analogies that we could use in the Bible. I mean, the Bible says in Ephesians that we're dead in our trespasses and sin. See, if you've trusted in, the, in Christ as your Lord, if you've trusted him in, in Jesus as your Savior, I want you to understand something. It's not because you're so smart. Not that you have some kind of keen logic and that you have some kind of insight and some kind of brilliant power to get you there. No, it's because God opened your mind. He was merciful to you. You know, I, I, I see stories that the Apostle Paul, he was Saul, and, and, and God blinded him so that he could open his eyes. Later on, Paul goes to a city, and there's a lady named Lydia. And the Bible says that God opened her heart to receive the gospel. God does these things. God is the one who's opening your heart. God is the one who's opening your eyes. And God uses you and I to help open the eyes of others. And it's not always by preaching with words. It's sometimes preaching with actions. You know, none of us can grow or even begin to grow as a Christian until we've received life and light from God through faith in Jesus Christ. So the foundation of all of our growth has to be, first of all, we have to be founded in Christ. It's the life of Christ in you and in me that gives us the motivation and the power to change and the power to grow spiritually. It seems that minute or the instant that you trust in Christ, you begin to tap into, you graciously receive or he gives you what he says is the unfathomable riches of Christ. He says you get to be partakers of the divine nature. Oh my gosh. And that supplies everything that you need for life and for godliness. Can you get this? So Peter, when he starts teaching us here, he makes an assumption. He assumes that faith is going to be the foundation which on all, all these other virtues are going to rest and which they grow. So we receive faith in Christ as a gift. You are saved by grace through faith, which is the gift of God. We receive it so that no man can boast. I don't know about you, but I wasn't looking for God when I got saved. He found me. I was quite happy serving the devil. And I was doing a good job. 
I was. I served the devil with my whole heart, my whole mind, my whole soul, and all my strength. I partied every weekend, and I'd party in the week if I could. I'm just having a good time. I didn't know I was lost. I didn't know I wasn't saved. I, didn't, I thought I was a good I was a good religious person. I went to church every Sunday. But I didn't have a relationship with Almighty God. I didn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I served the devil. And then Jesus opened my eyes. Jesus found me. Jesus is finding you. He's going to find you. Does that make sense? Second Peter 1 verse 1. And I love this verse of scripture. It says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, speaking to those who through righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. He states it right there. In the first part of that verse, he says, for, he says as an apostle, he says, I'm speaking to those of you that have received a faith as precious as ours. From Jesus Christ, the righteous one. You didn't get that faith because you're so spiritual, you're so holy, you're so good. No, God opened your eyes. God found you. Jesus came to find you, to save you for a purpose. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Thank God that he loves his people. Thank God somebody prayed for you. Thank God somebody preached to you. Thank God somebody showed you the gospel. Whew, thank God. I'm saved. Amen? So, to grow in godliness, what we have to make sure is that we've, first of all, trusted in Jesus Christ and all of his gracious promises. And faith is the essential foundation for growing in godliness. The Bible says that he's given to every man the measure of faith. What is that measure? Every human being has the measure of faith to get saved. He says, I've given to every man the measure of faith. So there's enough faith in every man to get saved. Don Richardson, a great missionary, wrote this about all the tribes and all the people of the world. He says, every tribe and every people and every person in the world has a compass in their heart that leads to God. We have to find how to get that compass and let them see God, but every person needs God, wants God, deserves God, but needs to be led there. That's our job. The second point today is that to grow in godliness, you have to maintain a right motivation. Now, I'm still focusing on Peter's opening phrase, now for this very reason, for this very reason, okay? Now, the reason that we should apply all diligence and supply these seven qualities we're going to talk about in our lives to our faith is that God has made us and he did this graciously. He made us partakers of his nature. And he's granted to us everything that we need for life and for godliness through his precious and magnificent promises. These words are powerful. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness through his magnificent, precious promises. First, 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 4. Let's just read it together. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. 
through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and his own goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of this world caused by lust or caused by evil desires. So right motivation is very important for us as believers. In fact, it's essential. It's essential. It's easy to get the wrong motivation. And the church, I'm sorry, we've, we, even I've been guilty of giving emphasis on something that may have caused the wrong motivation in a person's heart. See, you, you may want to grow up as a believer so that others in the church might think, oh my, what a wonderful Christian he is or she is. Oh, look at her. She is such a beautiful Christian lady. Well, that's pride. That's pride. And that's a wrong motivation. Or maybe you want to grow up to, and, and be a believer so that you can be successful in your family or successful in your business. Well, that might be better than pride, but it's still wrongly focused. It's still focused on yourself. I think it's right to desire God's blessings in your life. I think it's right to desire his blessings in your family, in your business. But the motivation behind the desire should be something like this. God, I want your blessing so that my life will bring glory to you. My life will bring glory to your name. You set your love on me and saved me when I was in the gutter. I heard one guy say, you saved me from the guttermost to the uttermost. You called me out of darkness into your marvelous light. Now, Lord, I want to grow in godliness so that my life proclaims your excellencies. 1 Peter 2.9, look what it says. It says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Man, I tell you, when God starts talking about us, I, I get kind of confused sometimes. He says, you're a holy nation. You're a powerful person. You're a, I feel like Gideon sometimes in the wine press. Who are you talking about? He says, I'm calling you this. I'm making you this. I'm, I'm calling you out of darkness so that you can be a representative of my gloriousness, my life through a person. Man, I want to grow up to be that person. How about you? See, I, another way of saying this is that God's grace as shown to us in Jesus Christ is really the right motivation for applying diligence. His grace on our lives causes us to apply the diligence to grow up spiritually. So here we see Peter is telling us, for you to grow in godliness, by the way, which is going to require some diligence, it's going to require some hard work, keep in mind that there's a truth that you need to keep in your mind, the glorious truth that God has imparted to you, all the life you need through Christ. You don't have to worry about this. He says you have all you need. He's given you everything that you need through some magnificent and through some precious promises that equip you for life, that equip you for godliness. 
He says, if you'll hold on to these promises, if you realize there's grace enough, if you realize that I'm working in your life, that the Holy Spirit's working with you, he says, you'll have everything you want for life and for godliness and be a partaker of divine nature. That's the right motivation right there. Number three, to grow in godliness, you must apply all diligence. Applying all diligence, Peter says, uh, is, is, is the key to doing this. Applying all diligence. That word applying occurs only here in the New Testament. One time in the New Testament. It means to bring in besides. The idea is, is that God has given you his life. God has given you his promises. But now you bring in diligence alongside those things. Beside those things, bring in diligence that you might grow. Diligence. biblical pattern, you know, as a pastor, I understand that there's dichotomies in the Word of God, paradoxes. You know, Jesus is full of paradoxes. When he's with the lawgivers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, he acts like a libertarian. They accuse him of being a drunkard. They accuse him of being a wine-bibber, of, of a party guy. When he's with the party people, when he's with the libertarians, he's always bringing them back to the law. He says, don't you know that the law is here? See, he's bringing the correction on both sides of the extremes. God's not an extremist. He's saying, hey, listen, live a balanced life. Live a life, but don't be taken or don't be swallowed up by either extreme. He says, live your life in the promises of God. Live your life in godliness. Be a partaker of divine nature. He's always doing that. So the, the biblical pattern is neither let go and let God. Some people have that attitude. We'll just let go and it's all up to God. Nor is it the other pattern that says, God has done his bit, now it's all up to you. But it's, I think it's more like since God is, is powerfully at work on the inside of you, that God's powerfully working in your life, you yourself must also make every effort. We are co-laborers with God. God working with us and we working with God. Paul said in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You work it out because God's working in you. Do you see that paradox? In other words, spiritual growth involves God's resources as the foundation, but our efforts, our responsible efforts in addition to it. The word diligence means eagerness, earnestness, or zeal. Eagerness, earnestness, or zeal. So Peter's saying, make every effort, effort to add diligently these qualities that I'm going to teach you about. The word supply is an interesting Greek word. It comes from the word where we get our word chorus or choreography. It's a Greek word that uh, kind of gives the idea of if a wealthy man or what we would call an angel today in the, in the, in the entertainment industry uh, 
would give any, he, he, he would give everything that was necessary for a stage play or for a musical production, a performance. And the idea is that he would give lavishly because the donor didn't want people who came to see the chorus or to see the, the uh, production thinking that he was stingy. Thinking that, oh, I, that was a terrible show. Why? Well, he cut corners, you know. So they would give lavishly. They would, they would have this lavish supply. Is this making sense to you? So God wants us to have a lavish supply. So when we put this all together, here's what Peter's saying. Make every effort eagerly and lavishly to supply these qualities on the foundation of your faith in Christ. I think I wrote it up here on the screen for you. I thought that's, where, that's taking all that we just said in that one verse and condensing it in a way you can understand it. Make every effort eagerly and lavishly to supply these qualities on the foundation of your faith in Christ. You have to do something, but God gave you the faith to build on. He says, I've given you a foundation that you can build on. You know, when I was a younger Christian, there was a teaching that went around, and, I, and, and, and we were taught that uh, we don't have to exert ourselves. You know, we don't have to work hard to grow spiritually. In fact, we kind of had this idea. If you're striving or you're exerting yourself, you're not resting in Christ. The Christian life is a life of faith and rest. It's the faith rest life. Just rest in Christ and he gives you the victory over sin. He produces holiness in you. And, and some of the teachers that taught this would even appeal to the analogy of John 15 where it talks about abiding in the vine. You know, if you're in the vine and, 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 and if you abide in the word and the word abides in you, if you are grafted into the vine, how many, how many vines are working hard? They're just abiding. They just grow. And, and I thought, well, you know, and I love that because, you know, it got me off the hook from having to do anything. You know, they would teach you that the branch doesn't struggle to grow. It doesn't strive to bear fruit. It's effortless. It just abides in the vine and the life flows from the branch into the vines and the vines produce. It sounds so easy, doesn't it? But that approach to the Christian life ignores many other scriptures that talk about struggle, talk about effort on our part. And I, I understand. We effort, we have effort and we struggle according to the power of God that works in us. But I know that it's still me that has to struggle. It's still me that has to make the effort. And it's you that has to make the effort. The Apostle Paul said that about his own ministry, he says, about the grace that was on his life. He says, there was a grace on my life. He says, but I worked harder than everybody. I had to work hard at my ministry. And look what he had to suffer. Look at the things he went through for a ministry. In Colossians 1.29, he says this. He says, for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Do you see that balance again? I'm working really hard. I'm striving according to the power of God that's working in me. We work together. It's not just God doing it. It's not just you doing it. There's a balance. 
then, of course, I love Hebrews 12, verse 4. We're talking about our striving against sin. We have to fight against sin. Another verse says, lay aside the sins that so easily beset you. That's your responsibility. Throughout the New Testament, you find many illustrations, many analogies of warfare, Christians fighting. In fact, warfare and fighting is a picture of the Christian lifestyle. Fighting isn't effortless. I don't know if you know that. You don't just abide in the vine and fight a fight. Fight the good fight of faith. Get up and fight the enemy. You have to exert yourself, sometimes to the point of exhaustion, to beat your enemy. Are you applying all diligence to grow in Christ? Do you give the mental effort that's necessary? Do you make time to grow spiritually? Do you wrestle with where you need to grow? Do you work out a plan to get there? Do you read books? Do you study theology? Do you know the important doctrinal matters that will stretch your mind, that will help you think about the hard questions in life and in the Bible? You see, if you're on spiritual autopilot, you're not applying diligence. Well, I just trust the Lord. You know, God will do it. No, you're not going to grow spiritually unless you deliberately work at it. But what does growth entail? What does that mean? Where do we need to focus? And this brings us to the heart of our text today. To grow in godliness, and I need my illustration out here now. I have some people going to help me here. So to grow in godliness, you have to make progress in seven areas. Seven areas, okay? Thank you, gentlemen. They got all the good-looking men out of the church today, eh? Well, with the exception of Isaac. <laughs> That's because you were so, listen, you, you stole the show at Sin on Sunday, okay? So I have to pick on you. All right. So here's what I want you to understand. Faith, everybody say faith, faith. is the foundation. So we have to have faith as our foundation. To faith, we must apply goodness or moral excellence. Moral excellence. Number two. To moral excellence, we add knowledge. To our faith, we add moral excellence. To our faith, we add knowledge. To knowledge, we add self-control. To faith, we add self-control. To faith and moral excellence and knowledge, we add self-control. These aren't just done one at a time. They're done severally. To, to, moral, to, 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 to self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. Or mutual affection, some versions say. And out of mutual affection comes love. Agape love. Agape love. So now I want you to just think about this. Why on earth would Peter choose these qualities? I'll tell you why. If you read and you continue studying, you're going to find out that these qualities are exactly the opposite of the evil characteristics of the false teachers that he exposes later on in chapter 2. 
In chapter 2, he exposes the false characteristics of, of, of the, the, the characteristics of false teachers. They didn't have moral excellence. They didn't have Christ-likeness. They claimed to have knowledge of God, but they didn't know God, who was holy. They lacked self-control. They indulged their flesh. They were not persevering in godliness. They'd gone astray. Rather than demonstrating true brotherly kindness and love, they were simply exploiting people for their own gain. And I'm going to tell you, that's like many of our prophets today. I got on the flight to Bulawayo, and uh, there was a sister in the church from the church there. She was so excited to see me uh, she, because we're both going to the same conference in Bulawayo. And, and she says, Pastor, she says, I just, can I tell you a story? I said, sure. She says, I, I, first of all, I just want to tell you how proud I am that you're my pastor. I said, oh, I said well, listen, don't, don't, uh, listen I, I've got many faults and flaws. I, I'm sure there's nothing I'm doing that, that's great. No, no, she says, she said, she said, what, and she named one of the big prophets. She says, this guy was in the, coming into the uh, airport, and he had all of his army of protocol people around him. And these people came up to the security desk, and they told the guy at the security counter, the prophet doesn't go through security. And the little security guard stood there and said, everybody goes through security. No, the prophet doesn't go through security. And, this, and then she said that she began to, these, these, these security guys began to abuse him using very filthy language. Language that should not come out of the mouth of believers. Words that start with F and things like that. And they, and, 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 they, and they railed on this guy. And this little security guard stood there and said, I, you know, this is an international airport. The international law says that everybody has to go through security, including the prophet. So the prophet angrily and reluctantly takes off all of his belts and ties and shoes and everything he has to do to go through. And then turns to him and says, in 90 days you'll be dead. Now let me tell you something. There's the sign of a false prophet right there. For cursing someone for doing their job? Are you kidding me? Where is Jesus in that? Where is love? Where is kindness? Goodness? Where is Moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love in that. That's why the Bible says you judge by the fruit. So the order is really important. The order is important. Faith is the bedrock. Without faith, you're not a believer. Moral excellence, one version says virtue, another says goodness, is necessary. Because without that, we can't have a clear conscience. If you don't have goodness, if you don't have a clear conscience, if we know that we're living in, and we have known disobedience to God, he cannot reveal spiritual truth to you. We can see then that virtue or Moral excellence precedes knowledge. Knowledge closely follows because we have to know the word of God to inform our conscience, to guide us, 
in all of our thinking, in all of our behavior. But knowing the truth does not help us exercise self-control. Unless we want to practice the truth. So self-control is next. You have to know something before you can practice it. But self-control on a few occasions will not help if we then yield and ruin our testimony. So we need perseverance. When trials and temptation come, we need to have perseverance. As we persevere, we need to develop godliness. Godliness is referring to living in reverence to God in every situation. We sense that God is with us all the time. And, 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 and true godliness is not a private matter just between the individual and God. Oh, God and I, you know, I have it. No, no, no. It manifests itself in godly relationships, brotherly kindness, mutual affection. So we need brotherly affection. And most of all, we need the self-sacrificing agape love of God. So this is a logical order. It's not necessarily a chronological order. In other words, I think it would be wrong for you and I to think that, hey, before I could have knowledge, I have to have moral excellence. And before I can have love, I have to have all these other things. No, God, God works severally in, uh, with this. He, he's working on all these areas all at the same time. We're growing in all these areas as we become men and women who live by faith and are becoming who God wants us to be. Does that make sense? They're all interrelated. So, let's just go through it again. To your faith, richly supply moral excellence. To your faith, richly supply moral excellence. The word excellence here was used to denote the proper fulfillment of anything. The excellence of a knife is to cut. The excellence of a horse is to run. Have you ever seen a, a stallion run? Have you ever seen a, a mare run? Have you ever seen a horse race? There's nothing more beautiful than a horse at a full gallop, free to be who they're supposed to be. That's excellence. That's what they were made to do. So Peter uses it in this context. Two verses earlier, before he mentions it here, he says he's referring to Jesus Christ. He says, Jesus Christ is the most excellent thing. And the power of Christ in you, Christ-likeness, is what you were supposed to be. Excellence for you and I is to become like Christ. So we're to grow in the character qualities that mark Jesus. Just as he is always obedient to the Father, I see what my Father sees, and I, I only do what I see my Father doing. I say what my Father's saying. He says, that's how we should be. We should live to glorify him. Next, we add to our moral excellency, our, our, we add to moral excellence a rich supply of knowledge. A rich supply of knowledge. This refers to practical wisdom. This is the wisdom that you gain and, uh, through the exercise of moral excellence. As you do those things that are virtuous, as you begin to take on virtue, we gain knowledge of how God wants to live in our lives. We get it through studying of the word. It tells us how to think, how to use our tongue, how to behave, how to deal with almost every imaginable solution that there is. 
As we put our knowledge to use, it helps us to grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ better. Third, we take our knowledge and we supply to it, richly supply self-control. Put a rich supply of self-control on that. Self-control is also the final item on the list of fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5.23, Paul says that God is at work in us. So that we can walk in the spirit. But we also have to practice this. You have to practice being in self-control. Paul uses the word in reference to an athlete. How many of you know that an athlete who exercises self-control in all things does so so that he might win? It's also necessary for elders in the church. Elders have to practice self-control. By definition, self-control means that you must go against your impulses. You have to go against your feelings in order to attain a higher goal. An athlete has to get up in the morning and go to work and practice. He has to stop eating junk food. He has to eat the right kind of food. He has to exercise the right amount of time or he's not going to be a successful athlete. He has to go work out when he doesn't feel like it. Which is all the time. You never feel like working out. It applies to controlling your desires, including greed, sex, food, emotions, and the use of your time. To your self-control, richly supply perseverance. To our self-control, we supply perseverance. Perseverance, perseverance is the ability to endure hardship. It's the ability to endure distress. It's defined as the characteristic of a man who is unswerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety, even by the greatest trials and sufferings. What a definition. It's often used with reference to suffering throughout the Bible. What it simply means is this, that we keep following Jesus Christ even when it results in persecution, even when it results in hardship, we're going to follow and do what Jesus tells us to. Then we have to our, we, to our perseverance, we richly supply godliness. Godliness. Godliness refers to a very practical awareness of God in every aspect of our lives. I don't know about you, but I'm constantly aware of who God is and that he's in my life. The other night we were in Bulawayo with all of our pastors. Well, not all of them, but about 15 of us. And we're having dinner at a nice restaurant. And I'm aware that the whole restaurant is watching the celebration pastors. And we're not being, we're behaving nicely, but we're having a good time. We're talking, we're fellowshipping. And we have a little waitress and she comes and she's the drinks waitress. And we're teasing her and she's just got a great little spirit. And then our other waiter, he serves us, and he does an amazing job. So at the end, the provincial pastor paid for the bill because it was part of the budget for the big conference down there. And, but I felt in my spirit, hey, we've got to do more than just pay the bill. And I'd just come in from South Africa, and so I had a few rand in my pocket. This little drink girl, she was amazing. So I went and Without anybody knowing, I just went and handed her 200 rand. That was a lot of money for her. Then I went and gave the waiter 100 rand. And then the guy at the parking lot attendant, I gave him 50 rand. 
Now, do you know the buzz that that caused in the restaurant? The celebration pastors were here. They were a blessing. See, I didn't say in 90 days you're going to die. <laughs> See, folks, get the right attitude, the right spirit. But that's a picture of godliness. Godliness is I was aware that God wanted to do something. And where does it lead to? It leads to brotherly kindness. This Greek word for brotherly kindness is the word Philadelphia. It means brotherly love. It's the feeling of kindness or mutual understanding and care that exists amongst, or should exist, I should say, amongst family members. It could apply to how we treat every human being, since we're all part of the human family. But it especially applies to those who are part of the family of God. You, we have to accept everyone that Christ accepts. We have to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, Ephesians 4 says. We must do good to all men, all people, especially to those who are the household of faith. That's, that's brotherly kindness, mutual affection. That's what we're doing now with our cards. I don't know about you, but I have a very godly sense about me when I'm in the marketplace right now. And I've got a pocket full of these cards. I was at the airport the other day. And uh, I was with Milton. And uh, we, I, when I came in, I was, uh, I had two hours to wait before I took my next flight. So I just, boom. Said, oh, so we went out and had time to spare. So I, we went to a little restaurant there. I said, hey, I hadn't eaten. So I said, let's just have a little bite to eat. So we're eating. And all of a sudden, these two young boys come in and, they are effeminate. They're hugging each other. and it's, it, it, it's, it's, it, In our culture, it's not often seen. So I teased Milton a little bit, and he, he went and looked, and I he said, yeah. But it was, it was awkward. But... At the end, I thought, you know what? Those little boys probably haven't had love for a long time. Real love. So I got up and I paid their bill. They'd eaten a lot and drank a lot. <laughs> so it was $32. And for the quality of restaurant this is, that's a lot of money. So I said, okay, I'll pay the bill. So, but here's what happened. I, I, I had one of our cards. I told the waiter, I said, I'm going to pay their bill. By the way, I gave the waiter a nice tip as well. I said, but I, want, I, said, I paid the bill. I said, I want you to give them this card. I don't want them to know where it came from. Because they need to be loved. Brotherly love. Not brotherly love because they're of my persuasion or the way. No, no, because you have a heart that says, hey, I want to show godly love to everybody. Even though they don't see things the way I see things or feel things the way I feel things. As I'm doing this, the waiter is getting excited. This guy's paying their bill. So the girl's behind the counter, you know. So they're all figuring out that, hey, these guys are from Celebration Church. This, that, that, you know, they don't know I'm the pastor. I think they just think I'm some old white guy. 
And so I'm paying for these two little boys over here that are making a real scene. And, and nobody can figure out what's going on. But love is prevailing. Brotherly kindness is leading to an act of agape love. We love not because they're loving or they're lovable, but because of the love of God that's shed abroad in our hearts. Do you see what I'm saying? And that's going to change Zimbabwe when we start loving like that. I left before they ever got their bill paid for. We were long gone. I'd love to know what happened. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. By the way, I didn't tell them that they were going to die in 90 days either. Do you understand, folks? Ours isn't to judge. Ours isn't to point the finger. Ours is to just love and love unconditionally. Is anybody getting this? So this last word, love, is agape. E-J-E-A-G-A-P-E. And it means self-sacrificing commitment to seeking the highest good of the person you love. Peter exhorts us to apply all diligence so, so that we can supply brotherly kindness and love. These qualities are not spontaneous. They don't just happen. I'm telling you, they don't happen. You have to work at showing love. We have to often go against our feelings of pride, our judgments, our laziness, our self-centeredness if we want to demonstrate love for other people. Now, I'll tell you what. We're practicing that this month. But we can practice it every day of our lives as, as believers. But instead of keeping to yourself here in the church, many of you come to church, you never meet anybody, and you're waiting for somebody to greet you. You've been coming here for a year, you're not a visitor anymore. Well, nobody ever greets me. Well, start greeting someone else. Instead of keeping to yourself, which you may prefer, I understand that, why don't you look for others who might be new or alone and go out of your way to make them feel welcome. If a person's hurting, pray for them. If someone seems lonely, arrange to get together later in the week and say, hey, let's come to my soul group. Hey, let's get for a cup of coffee. And the list is endless if you'll stop thinking about yourself, if you'll start having a sense of godliness, if you'll have some brotherly kindness, mutual affection, and love working in your life that stems out of a heart of faith with moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, and perseverance. You see, because Jesus was the epitome of all this stuff, and he gave himself on the cross to save you from God's judgment, you and I should desire to be useful and fruitful as a blood-bought servant of Christ. But see, to be useful and fruitful, you have to be growing in godliness. And that requires diligent effort. Let me say this, and I'll close. Spiritual growth is not a quick fix. That clock's wrong. Father, we worship you, we adore you in Jesus' name.
I thought I had a minute and a half, but Lord, you deserve all the praise all the time. Amen. You know, I was going to start right on time. I, I had this time to the last second. I was going to impress you today. Spiritual growth is a long process. It's not a quick fix. It's kind of like a diet or an exercise program. It only shows results when you practice it consistently and stick with it over a long time, over the long haul. If you're not making much spiritual progress, it simply means this, you're not well established. Maybe your axles are stuck in the mud. I want you this year, and we've started our new Hebrew New Year, to begin to set some spiritual goals. Those goals, I would recommend, should be centering around this verse of Scripture that we've just studied today. Memorize this verse of Scripture. Study it. At least memorize those seven principles, those eight things that we're adding, the seven things we're adding to faith. Faith is a foundation, goodness, and moral excellence. In great supply and knowledge, supplying, adding to our faith, adding to these things, knowledge and self-control, adding to it our perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness. Thanks for listening. For more teachings and videos, visit celebrationmen.org.